0: Good morning. Good morning. It's great to be with you guys this weekend. I want to welcome you again to Seacoast Church. I want to welcome those of you that are joining us at any of our locations. We're glad that you guys are here as well. My name is Josh Surratt and I am one of the pastors here and I'm excited to be here. Uh, this weekend is especially cool for me to be here because it's our 11-year wedding anniversary. Lisa and I celebrate 11 years uh, this weekend. Thank you. And uh, so we've been talking this week a little bit, reflecting back. We love to, every year, kind of look back at the last year. What were our favorite moments? What were some of the, the tough things that we got through? And we were thinking back, and I, I actually reflected back to my first year of marriage. And I, I was remembering and reminiscing about my very first marriage retreat at Seacoast. Uh, we do marriage retreats from time to time. We actually have one coming up uh, in October, the second week of October. We're going to do a love and respect marriage conference here at the church, and doing that with all of our campuses. So we invite you to put that on your calendar. But... I had been married for three months, it was 2001, and we went to our very first marriage retreat. I mean, we had some things to work on. I think our biggest fight at that point was, you know, the whole, no, I love you more. No, no, I love you more, you know. So we had to go work some of these things out, uh, but we were excited, we were excited to just kind of connect with some other couples and learn more about marriage, and, and we went down to Hilton Head, South Carolina for this retreat, and I'll never forget riding home uh, from that retreat. I had a deer-in-the-headlights look on my face. I mean was not expecting what we saw uh, there were sessions on how to forgive your spouse like forgive for what I mean she's never done anything wrong to me and and how to how to not hate your spouse as much tomorrow as you did yesterday you know kind of stuff <laughs> rediscovering intimacy in your marriage what where does it go where does it hide I, you know we've been married three months here what, what are you talking about you know, a lot of the stuff that they talked about at that retreat kind of went right over our heads because we, we'd only been married three, three months. You know, we had what we thought was a perfect relationship. And so I was asking the question on the way home, how do you get from here to there, like in marriage? I mean, I mean how does that happen in a relationship? Well, fast forward 11 years, and I still wonder, actually, no, I, I get it now. I understand. <laughs> and you do too if you've been married for very long. Uh, you understand that the love that got you to the altar in the first place is not enough to sustain a marriage, right? Uh, th- those feelings that took you to the altar w- won't, won't get you through. The only thing that will sustain a marriage and really h- help you to thrive in a marriage is, is love, but not just the feeling of love, but the choice to love one another and the authentic love that, that the Bible talks about. And so we're in a series right now called Love Is, and we've been talking about love, talking about what it means to, to love one another in the way that, that the Bible describes it, and the way that Jesus talked about it. Because Jesus, really, if you boil down who he was and what he was about, he was about loving one another. He said, you, if you want to know what it's about, love the Lord your God and love each other as yourself. And sometimes I feel like we look at that and we go, yeah, it's just all about love. That's all that matters. And we, and we view that as kind of a loose, easy concept. But when you start reading through 1 Corinthians 13, you realize Love isn't all that easy at all. In fact, it's, it's a series of choices that can be very difficult, but it's the key to sustaining relationships. So we're going to talk about that today. Uh, how many of you are married today or engaged? Raise your hand if you're married or engaged. Okay, a lot of you guys, that's great. I feel like married couples are going to kind of be in the center of the bullseye of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, now, if you're not married, that doesn't mean it doesn't apply to you because really love obviously works in all relationships. But I want to talk specifically to married people Uh, for part of our message, because I believe that the one verse that we're going to talk about today in 1 Corinthians 13 has enough truth packed into it to sustain an entire marriage, not only to make you survive, but to make you really thrive in a relationship. And just one small little verse in 1 Corinthians. In fact, I want us to read that verse together. It's 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. At all of our campuses, we're going to read this out loud. It says, love does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. And it keeps no record of being wronged. Now, when I first read that, I thought, let's just come together today. We'll read the verse and let's all go to the cross and be done with it. Because, I mean, we've all blown it there, right? I mean, love, love keeps no record of wrong. Love doesn't demand its own way. Love isn't irritable. Most of you blew it in one of those three areas on your way to church today. If we're just being honest. I mean, all of us, all of us, right? Struggle there. But let's dig into it. Let's spend a few minutes breaking this down and see if we can learn together how to win at love. I mean, how how do we really win at love? If you want to win at love, there's a few things we have to do. The first one is this. Don't act like a (laughs) two-year-old. Don't act like a two-year-old. Look what it says, verse five again. Love does not demand its own way. Now, if you're a parent, you're well aware of the human tendency to demand your own way. It surfaces very early and I have a two-year-old daughter, Greta Kate, she's beautiful, she's adorable, she's awesome, but here's the deal. Here's how things work in our home with with our two-year-old. And whenever myself or my wife make a decision in the house that doesn't line up exactly to her vision of how things ought to work in our home, what happens? No! No! And she just yells no. She demands her own way. And depending on whether uh, grandparents are watching her or whether we're watching her, one of two things will happen. If grandma and papa are watching her, then she'll yell that way until she gets her own way. And I'm grateful for... (laughs) for free babysitting and lo- love, love the way they, they pour into our, our kids. If mom and dad are watching her, she'll yell like that until we remove her from the room where everyone else is and put her in some isolation and let her work it out so she gets a happy heart. That's what we say. Get a happy heart. You can join the rest of the family. Until then, do your thing over there because we don't want to hear it. And, and here's the deal. One of my responsibilities as a dad is to help my children, especially in their formative years, to understand that they are not the center of the universe, right? They're very well loved. We're, we're grateful to have them as a part of our family, but the world does not revolve around my two-year-old. The truth is, all of us in this room today and at all of our campuses, especially Somerville, I'm just kidding, <laughs> picking on you guys, all of us are learning that lesson still, right? We're at some phase in learning that the, the world doesn't revolve around us, that we shouldn't demand our own way. Now, I hope that you've learned to package it a little bit differently, you know, I hope when your boss tells you to do something, you go, like, no, I'm not doing that. Some of you do, but we, we, we ought to, to do it differently. But we, we still struggle. If you have a la- more laid back personality, it may be packaged like this. You know, we, we conveniently forget, right? Forget that our spouse asks us to help straighten up with the house or do the dishes because there's a big game on TV, right? Oh, I'm sorry, babe. I forgot that you asked me to do that. That's kind of a, a passive aggressive way of demanding our own way. Or maybe you become irritable. And moody until the circumstances around you change. Maybe you've even conveniently received an onset of a headache at just the wrong time because you're like, I ain't going there. Not not the way you've treated me today. You know, those are all kind of little subtle, passive-aggressive ways of demanding our own way. Sometimes it plays out with more controlling behaviors. If you're maybe uh, more of a type A personality, maybe you're the kind of person that you always want to get the last word in an argument. You know, Pastor Greg actually tweeted uh, something that was very, very important for us to learn. It says, a woman has the last word in every argument. Anything a man says after that is the beginning of a new argument. <laughs> that's good. You can tell the, the women are the ones clapping, but, but men, we might as well learn it early. We, we, we can't demand our own way. You know, but there are many of us, that that's, that's how we are. We, we, we want to be the final authority on issues relating to the home, the family, finances, the children. If that's you, then you're revealing kind of this controlling attitude that eventually is going to sabotage our relationships. See, in relationships that love the way that Jesus taught us to love, there's, there's compromise. You know, we have to honor and value the contributions of, of both parties. We understand that marriage is synonymous with the word compromise, right? I remember being in premarital counseling, and uh, Pastor Sam Leskey up at the North Charleston Dream Center uh, did the premarital counseling for Lisa and I, and, and I knew that we needed to compromise. And th- th- that season of my life, uh, I was working in a restaurant and mornings were free, so I played golf about three times a week. And so I understood that things were going to need to change. And my, my kind of understanding of what compromise should look like was that Lisa could come with me one of those three times. <laughs> Made sense to me. But Sammy straightened me out and taught me that, hey, love doesn't demand its own way. You're going to have to learn to compromise. The balance of power is just that, it's a balance in a relationship, it's it's not one-sided. Every time I get my way at the expense of somebody else, then I erode the bond of that relationship just a little bit more. Every single time that I demand my way at someone else's expense, that bond gets eroded just a little bit more. You may say, well, Josh, I wasn't this selfish before I got married. Yes you were, you just didn't have a witness, now you have a witness. (laughs) that can help you with that. All of us are in the process of learning that it's not about us. So what do we do about it? Look at Philippians 2, verses three through four. It says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others. Wouldn't you agree that our relationships would go a lot more smoothly if we would just apply that verse? If we, if we said, you know what, I'm going to look out for, for my spouse, for her interests more than I look out for my own. Yeah, I'm going to figure out a way to outserve my spouse this week. I'll bet if we would do that, that things would work out a little bit better for us. So let me ask you a question. In what ways have you been demanding your own way in your relationship? If you can't think of any, just check with your spouse. She probably has a list uh, re- ready and able. But, but what, how have you been doing that? How have you been being selfish? My prayer for all of us is that the Lord would just highlight those things in our lives, and we would be willing to confess of that, to repent of it, and to to move past this demanding our own way and being selfish. Because if we're going to win at love, be successful in relationships, we can't act like a two-year-old. Second thing that we can't do is, is don't overreact in anger. Don't overreact in anger. Look at how the next part of the verse reads in the NIV. It says, love is not easily angered. It's not easily angered. You ever found yourself getting upset uh, by a comment made by your spouse or a loved one? Maybe it wouldn't have bothered you so much if somebody else said it, but because they did, it kind of got under your skin. Truth is, the closer we are to people, the more they have the ability to set us off, to make us upset. Pastor Greg asked us at La Point Campus this week at First Wednesday a question. He said, has anybody screwed up recently? Anybody? Raise your hand. Anybody answer that? A couple people. Actually, this is a very clean audience. Only about three or four here at the Longpoint Point campus. I raised my hand, and the reason I wanted you to raise yours is because I need, I'm, I'm going to get ready to confess one of the ways that I, I did. This past Monday morning, I was with my son Miles and, and Greta Kate. I was taking them to school, and we were right on time. We got to school, and I got out of the car. and went to open his door to get him out, and uh, he had taken his shoes off, and so this is a battle that we fought from time to time. And so I'm a little frustrated, but okay, whatever. Miles, you got to put your shoes on. We're, we're going to class. You can't go to class without your shoes. And so I put his shoes on and I, I sat him down and he's like, daddy, I don't want to wear my shoes. Well, big deal. You're wearing your shoes. And so I went back and I got Greta Cape and got her out and I walked back around and he's standing there and he's crying. And now I'm getting a little bit more frustrated because we got to get into class and no dad wants to bring his son to class while he's crying. So I'm like, son, stop crying. Get it together. You got to wear your shoes. I don't want to wear my shoes okay, I get it, son. I don't want to wear shoes sometimes either, but I, I've got to. Put them on. Let's go. Or he had them on. Let's, let's go to class. And then he goes, daddy, I'm not wearing my shoes. Did I mention it's the Baptist church across the street that I, um, I take him to school? And so I'm like starting to get embarrassed, get frustrated. I'm like, son, stop. I mean, the outside looks pretty com- composed, but I'm starting to kind of bubble over on the inside. I'm like, Miles, stop it and he gets worse and he starts screaming and so I'm like all right so I pick him up and I calmly put him in the car I take Gretta Kate put her in her seat and I drove off to the corner of the parking lot where nobody could see or hear (laughs) what was going on and I'm looking back and I'm going son get it together you're going to class we do this every day what is your problem I'm not wearing shoes so I pick up the phone and I call his mom Lisa (laughs) your son is driving me crazy. What is going on with him? He won't put his shoes on. I don't know. What do you want me to do? I don't know. I want to punch him. Well, don't punch. I'm not going to punch him. <laughs> I'm just telling you that he's driving me crazy. And so I hang up the phone and I'm like, all right, I, I got to figure this thing out. So I, I decided I'm going to take Greta Kate to her class, which is over here at Seco. So I drive her to class and, and as we're taking her in, I said, Miles, you have two choices. You're going to put your shoes on and you're going to go to your class with a happy heart or you're going to sit in this car all day long, no movie, no radio, I'm going to go inside and write a message on not becoming easily angered, and you're going to sit here, it's going to be miserable. Now, I obviously have no intentions, or I can't follow up on that threat, but it was, I'm frustrated at the time. So, so we go in, and we, we drop Kate off, and we come back to the car, and he looks at me, at me and he goes, Daddy, I can't make up my mind. So at that point i kind of lose it and i'm like let me help you make up your mind son okay if you don't put your shoes on you will never play mario a day in your life you will never go to the beach again we will never go on golf cart rides in fact you will never do one more fun thing another day in your life ever he's crying all right daddy i'll go to school and so so i took him to school all right so before i start getting emails uh, I understand that what I did was not 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 an appropriate way of parenting. Everything I've ever learned about parenting, you don't give a temper tantrum to an audience. You know, you don't yell and raise your voice at your kids. All these things I know. But what happened? I got frustrated. I got easily angered, and then I started doing some stupid things. In other words, here's the way the Bible says it. it says Proverbs 14:17, "Short-tempered people do foolish things." I get it. I was there. So I don't tell you that story to go, man, look at me. I'm going to write a book on parenting. I tell you that story because I became irritable. I I, I violated what God talks about. I didn't love my son in the way that I'm supposed to. N.T. Wright said it this way. He said, if you fight fire with fire, fire still wins. And that's definitely the case. Here's what the Bible's not saying. The Bible's not saying that love never gets angry. Anger is not a bad thing. It's saying love's not easily angered. Love isn't irritable, but anger in itself is not a bad thing. I think that means if I'm angry at my spouse, Lisa, if I get upset with her about something, that's not a bad thing. If I start yelling at her, if I get physical with her, then I've sinned. But if I go, hey, honey, uh, I'm I'm dealing with some anger here. Can we sit down and talk about it? Then I haven't sinned. If If we handle our anger appropriately, then we're in good shape. Anger serves some good purposes. It can get someone's attention about maybe something that's wrong, maybe a global issue, an injustice. Anger is sometimes, righteous anger is not a bad thing. Uh, Jesus got angry. Just a couple weeks ago, I was in Israel and had a chance to walk on the Temple Mount where Jesus walked in one day and he saw that these high priests had turned the church, this place of worship, into a way for them to abuse their power and make money off of people who couldn't afford to to even enter the temple without bringing sacrifice. And he got upset. What did he do? He flipped the, the tables over. We know Jesus never sinned, and so we know that his anger wasn't a bad thing. It, it was a good thing. It, it allowed him to see something that was wrong, and it allowed other people to see it as well. Every emotion that we have is given to us by God. So the emotions in and of themselves are not bad. It's just how we handle it. Look at 1 Kings eleven nine. It says, and the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. So how do I not sin in my anger? How do I not sin? I mean, if anger is okay, how do we do it? Because all of us deal with this, right? I mean, we get in situations where we kind of get frustrated. First thing we need to do is get some self-control. I talked about doing that with my kids, but, but as an adult, we need to do it. We need to learn how to get self-control. It's a whole lot easier to, to deal with anger if we don't let it get to that point where it bubbles over. And so learn to take a step back from the situation. Gain some self-control. Think, think things through. In my relationship with Lisa, there are times where I can just tell when she's mad. I mean, I know when my wife is upset. I know when something's bothering her. And so the way it'll play out for me is, is I'll see it, and I can handle it one of two ways. One way is to go, all right, babe, I can tell something's bothering you. What did I do now? Hit me with it. Let's talk about it. And that's often the way I would like to handle it. But I've learned in, in some marriage material over the years, it's the 10-second rule. Get some self-control before I open my mouth. Think through, how do I want to see this conversation resolving? Where do I see this thing going? And so another way to appro- approach it would be to go, hey, honey, I can tell something's bothering you. Is it something you want to talk about right now? If so, I'd, lo- I'd love to, to chat about it. And those two conversations go in completely different directions based on just getting some self-control and, and, and handling the situation with grace. Another way we can not sin is give it an expiration date. Give your anger an expiration date. The Bible says that we're not to let the sun go down on our anger. Look at Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. So why give anger an expiration date? Because if we don't, it gives a foothold to the devil. It becomes bitterness. In other words, when we choose to hang on to our anger, what we're saying is, hey, Satan, I know you're the author of lies and confusion. I know that you want to destroy my relationships. I know that you don't want to see my, my marriage thrive. I know that you don't want to see me accomplish everything that God wants me to accomplish. Why don't you come on in? Come on into my home. Go spend time with my kids. Wreak havoc in their place. Have your way in our marriage. That's basically what we're doing. The Bible says when we, when we choose to hang on to anger, we don't give it an, an expiration date then we're inviting the enemy into our relationship to have a foothold and to to wreak havoc in our lives. So give it an expiration date. And then don't don't sin. There's some things that we just shouldn't do in marriage or in relationships in general. Don't call names. Don't attack character. Don't plot to get even. Don't say and do everything you wanna say and do when you're angry. You gotta have some self-control. The Bible says a gentle answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 29, 11 says, a fool gives full vent to his anger. And I have a testimony on that as I share it. I mean, I felt that way on Monday morning. I was, I was a fool. I was giving full vent to my anger. And the Bible says we ought not to do that. So if we want to win at love, don't, don't demand your own way. Don't act like a two-year-old. Don't overreact in anger. Get control over that. The third thing that we've got to avoid is if you want to win at love, don't keep score. Don't keep score. It's the bottom of the ninth. Two outs. Game seven of the World Series. It all comes down to this. Surratt's at the plate. Freakishly calm for the circumstances. Here comes the windup, the pitch, the swing. There's a drive. Way back. It might be. It could be. It is. Home run. Surratt. As long as I can remember, I've been a die-hard sports fan. I played sports growing up in school, and now as an adult, I love cheering for sports teams. If You name a sport, I've got a team. In basketball, I love the Chicago Bulls. I'm still pulling for them in the playoffs. Even without Derrick Rose, I think they can do it. And of course, in baseball, I'm a die-hard Cubs fan. There's nothing like going to a game at Wrigley Field and cheering on the Cubs. And I, if I'm honest, I can be a little bit psychotic about it. I mean, I mean, there's no better feeling as a fan than at the end of the day when the final buzzer sounds or the final pitch is thrown, looking at the scoreboard and seeing that my team has won. And it's all fine and good when I'm talking about my Clemson Tigers beating the Carolina Gamecocks or when I'm talking about my Chicago Cubs beating, well, anybody these days. Sometimes I wish we didn't keep score in baseball, but but it's all good when it comes to sports teams. But... If I'm being honest, sometimes I take that mentality into my marriage. You know, there, there are certain things as a man that, that I, I maybe assign points to. Maybe I put food on the table or work really hard and think, that nah, it's got to be worth five points or so. Maybe I buy flowers for my wife or do something special for her and I think that's gotta be worth a few points, right? And as long as I've got more points, I'm gaining more points than I'm losing, then I'm up, right? I'm winning in this relationship. The problem is the Bible says that we're not supposed to take a scoreboard mentality into our relationships. It says in 1 Corinthians that love keeps no record of being wronged. So if, if I'm going to win in relationships, I've got to be willing to throw out the scoreboard. You know, nobody likes to wake up in the morning, feel like they're already down 15 points or they're down 20 points. The Bible says every day we ought to start from scratch. We ought to throw out the scoreboard. Because the truth is in, in a marriage, if one spouse wins, then the marriage loses. You know, so it's okay in sports, it's okay to think that way, but as, as a husband, as a wife, we've got to be willing to go, you know what, if this thing's going to work, if we're really going to have one of those relationships that stands the test of time, we've got to be willing to throw out the scoreboard. So yeah, there's, enter into my, my dream world. Actually, there was a guy in the last service that did hit a game-winning home run at Wrigley Field, uh, and he played for the Dodgers against the Cubs, so it just added insult to injury there, but... One of my favorite memories, though, in in high school sports was playing basketball, and especially if we were winning, we're playing a home game, and uh, maybe we're we're up by a lot of points, and the other team makes a nice play. Maybe they block a shot, or maybe they they hit a nice basket, and you hear their crowd kind of cheer a little bit, and then a couple seconds later, you would hear our home crowd begin to chant, and here's what they would say, scoreboard, scoreboard. In other words, enjoy your little moment there. But look at the scoreboard, because you're, you're losing. This is how this thing's going to turn out. And I love that as a, as a bas- basketball player. The problem is when I do that in my marriage, you know, maybe I blow it in an area. And instead of going, you know what, honey, I was wrong, will you forgive me? I go, y- yeah, but look at the scoreboard. I mean, remember what you did. Don't forget that, that, that you've blown it, too. How do we do it? How does it play out, the scoreboard thing in our marriage? When we're really using a scoreboard mentality, it, it means we're using words like always and never in arguments. What, why do you always embarrass me in front of your parents? How, how come you're always late picking up the kids? Why don't you ever do anything romantic anymore? You know, and when we use those words, what do we do? Well, we, we, we take us out of the, the situation that we're in right now, whatever discussion that we're having right now, and we go back and we point at the scoreboard and go, it's not just about this issue. It's about every time you've ever done that in the past. And we remind our spouse or our loved one about the way that they've fallen short in the past. They remind you that even though you thought you've worked through that issue, you haven't. It's still alive and well. Maybe you thought that you've forgiven somebody on an issue, but really you haven't because you're still allowing it to, to shape the way that you're viewing your spouse and the way that you're handling situations. You're still keeping a record of being wronged. And some of you are thinking, well, why would I want to forgive? I mean, you don't know what my spouse has done, or why would I want to forgive my ex-spouse, or someone in business that, that really, you know, messed with me and, and, and really made my life difficult financially. Why would I forgive that person? Well, let's talk about it for a minute. Why well, forgive one? Because I've been forgiven. Because I've been forgiven. If you call yourself a Christ follower, you're acknowledging that the way that you've lived your life deserves a penalty and punishment, that we've fallen short, that we, we, we've sinned in our lives. And the, the consequences for that sin is, is penalty. It's life apart from Christ. It's an eternal destiny apart from Christ. But instead, Jesus has offered us forgiveness, right? He said, no, instead of you paying for your sins, I'll pay for your sins. And, and so we ought to understand what forgiveness is all about. Jesus actually told a story about this. He talked about a king. There was a king and he had a servant. And the servant comes to him and, and the servant owes this king millions of dollars, a debt that he could never repay. And so the servant comes and he begs for mercy and he says, I'm so sorry, I, I can't repay this, but could you please, please show me mercy? And the king looks at this guy and he has compassion on him. And he says, you know what? I, I, I will, I'll give you mercy. In fact, you owe me nothing. Go on, no strings attached. You owe me nothing. I forgive you of your debt. And so this guy, this servant, he, he, he gets this news and he walks away from the king and, and then he bumps into a guy, probably a co-worker, and he, and he sees this guy and this guy, he had bought him lunch. Uh, I, he had bought this, this guy lunch the day before and he says, hey, I bought your lunch yesterday. You have that lunch money that you owe me? I mean, you owe me, it's like five bucks. Hook it up, buddy. And he's like, oh dude, I don't have five bucks right now but if you give me until next week, I'll, I'll pay you back and he, and he flips out and he's like, no, 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 no. You owe me five bucks. If you can't pay it up right now, you're going to jail. And he throws this guy in jail and he makes it so that he could never repay him. So what happens? And you guys, most of you have heard the story. The king gets news that this servant who he had forgiven of this massive debt that he could never repay has mistreated this other guy and, and has refused to forgive him. And so what does he do? The Bible says he tortures him until he can repay him. And he makes his life miserable. What's the point? The point of the story is that if, if we haven't learned to forgive, if we choose to, to live in unforgiving uh, mode, with, with people that we love, that it reflects that we don't have a right relationship with our Father. We don't understand the heart of our Father. We're not reflecting His heart. See, in other words, God's forgiveness of our sins should motivate us to forgive those who offend us. Look what Jesus said at the end of that story. Matthew eighteen thirty five. He said, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And those are pretty heavy words. So, so we ought to forgive because we've been forgiven. Another reason is because resentment doesn't work. Resentment doesn't work. St. Augustine said it this way. He said, resentment is like taking poison and hoping the other person dies. It's a great thought. You know, medical, uh, people in the medical field will tell you that incorrect handling of stressful situations like unforgiveness and like being wounded and hurt can cause any one of at least 50 physical diseases. They're called psychosomatic diseases. And it it means that the mind is so stressed that it causes the body to be physically ill. And many of us, by holding onto resentment, have experienced the physical destruction of, of resentment. By keeping a record, in other words, we continue to hold onto that hurt. We're willing participants in the process of hurting ourselves even more. And by failing to forgive, we transfer the responsibility from the person who hurt us to us, ourselves. So resentment doesn't work. Another reason is that my future depends on it. My future depends on it. Don't let God's plans for your future be held hostage by the pain from your past. You know, uh, back to my story with Miles. That Monday after, after school, I, I obviously had had some time to reflect on what was going on, Recognized that I had made some mistakes. And so I, I sat him down and I said, Miles, I wanna to talk to you about what happened today. So what you did was not right. you know, throwing the temper tantrum, but, but that's not what I want to talk about. Because even bigger than that, Daddy was wrong in the way I handled you. I shouldn't have raised my voice. I shouldn't have been frustrated with you. I lost it. I lost my cool, and I'm the adult. I shouldn't have done that. And son, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And Miles looks up at me. I'll never forget it. He goes, Daddy, I forgive you of everything you've ever done in your entire life. <laughs> like, who are you, Jesus, man? I mean... It's awesome. But I got to tell you as his dad, I'm so grateful that he doesn't have to carry that weight of unforgiveness around with him because it will wreak havoc in our future. Let me ask you a question. Could you look at your spouse today and say the same thing to them that he said to me? Say, "Honey, I just want to let you know that I forgive you for anything you've ever done to me." Every amount of pain and hurt that you've caused in my life, I forgive you for it. I'm not going to keep score anymore. I'm going to choose to believe the best in you. Let's level the playing field. Let's throw the scoreboard out the window. I forgive you. You know, and for a lot of us, there are some things that have built up over time, and if you're being honest, they're relatively trivial. They're not worth the pain that you've held over them, and we just need to do that. We need to forgive one another, whether it's our spouse, whether it's a coworker, we just need to do it, and you know that. But there are some others of us that there have been some major betrayals in your marriage. There's been sexual betrayal. Maybe there's been physical abuse. Maybe there's been uh, some sort of financial mistrust. And you're thinking, dude, I, I hear what you're saying. But how do you forgive somebody of, of that magnitude, something like that? I mean, mean, what do we do? A couple of thoughts on that. You got to recognize what forgiveness isn't. Forgiveness is not minimizing the offense. It's not saying, hey, what you did, really that wasn't a big deal. Don't worry about it. Not not a big deal. No, sometimes it's a huge deal. Sometimes it's life-altering pain. Forgiving doesn't mean that you're saying it didn't hurt. Forgiveness isn't condoning bad behavior. It's not saying, hey, I'm just gonna be a doormat. Walk all over me. No, not at all. Forgiveness isn't a feeling. It's, it's a conscious, powerful choice that we make to stop allowing that hurt to dictate my future and impact my life. Gandhi said it this way. He said, the weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. So it's not minimizing the offense. It's not an instant restoration of trust either. It doesn't mean that we just kind of go back to the way things were. It's not resuming the relationship as it was. You don't have to say, if I forgive, you know what that means? I just have to let them back in just the way they were and let them continue to hurt me. No, no, forgiveness isn't the same thing as a reunion of the relationship. It's not the same thing as reconciliation. And you know what? My heart and prayer, and I think Jesus' heart towards us, would be that we reconcile. But in order for reconciliation to happen, three things need to happen. First, both parties have to be involved, and there has to be repentance there has to be restitution made. There has to be rebuilding of trust in order for, for re- reconciliation to happen. And I hope it does. But in a lot of cases, that's just not possible. They may be remarried. You, get, you may have gone on it. It may be an ex that you're talking about. This may be somebody that hurt you way back in your past, and they've never owned up to it. They've never asked for forgiveness. So reconciliation takes two, but forgiveness just takes one. It takes one person to say you know what I'm going to forgive and it shouldn't be dependent on whether or not there's been an apology because what we're doing as we talked about is we're we're holding our future hostage by the pain from our past so how do I do it a couple quick simple thoughts one acknowledge my own imperfections acknowledge my own imperfections why because when someone hurts me I tend to dehumanize them right I mean, we, we tend to just assign them terrible motives. And when I acknowledge my own imperfections and remember what we talked about earlier that we've been forgiven, it helps me to come to terms that, you know what, I've made mistakes and, and they made a mistake too. So, so we, we acknowledge our own imperfections. We abandon our right to get even, recognize that ultimately it's God's job to balance the scales. That's up to him, not us. And then lastly, we apply God's grace to our future. Apply God's grace to my future. Just a couple weeks ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to visit a safe house in Greece. And we had the opportunity to spend some time with some girls who've experienced some unspeakable things in their lives. I mean, things that I couldn't even begin to, to talk about in this setting because they're so horrific, what these girls have gone through. Been held slavery, basically enforced into sexual slavery. And so I was talking to the director of the safe house and we were getting ready to go visit these girls and I was like, how, how do you do this, man? I mean, this is some heavy stuff. I mean, this is some major trauma. How do you help these girls? And, and what, what, do I, what should I say? How do I, I, I feel helpless going into this thing. And I shouldn't have been surprised at his response to me. He said, you know what? It's complex. It's, it's not easy. There's counseling. We do a whole lot of this stuff to help them come to terms with what's happened to them. But it all boils down to this. Remind them of their future. That's what we have to do. We have to remind them of their future. Help them to learn how to dream again. Because if we can get them and remind them that God has a future for them, God has a plan for their life, and yes, they've had a terrible past, and yes, they've had some tough stuff, but that doesn't determine the course of their future. You know, it's a new day now, and God wants to do a new thing in their lives. And it makes so much sense to me. And I want to do that for you as well. I want to remind you of your future. Do you know that you don't have to be held hostage by the pain of your past? Now, you may have experienced some deep trauma, some deep pain, and, and, and there's nothing that you can do to take that away. There's nothing you can do to go back and, and, and redo it. But it doesn't have to shape your future. You can forgive. You can release that into the hands of a loving God who ultimately will, will do what is right. He's the, the only judge who sees the whole picture, and ultimately he'll, he'll balance the scales in the way that he sees fit. But if you'll recognize that's not my job, I'm willing, whether it's a little thing, whether it's a big thing, to release my past so that I can look forward to my future. I love this final quote. Lewis Smead said this, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. And my prayer for all of us is that we would do that this weekend. Would you join me as we pray? Father, I thank you Uh, Lord, first of all, for the forgiveness that you've offered each of us. Lord, I stand here in front of my brothers and sisters at all of our campuses and and acknowledge that, Lord, what I deserve is not what you've given me. Lord, and you've been so merciful to me, you've been so gracious to me, and you've been gracious to every one of us in this place. We thank you, Lord, for that forgiveness that we don't deserve. Lord, for some of us, we're reminded of it today in ways that we've fallen short, Lord. We've acted like a two-year-old. We've demanded our own way. Lord, maybe we've been easily angered and irritable as I shared about earlier, God, and we we just haven't loved in the way that you've called us to love. We haven't demonstrated the kind of love that you demonstrated to us. And so God, we just ask you again, would you forgive us? Lord, and I thank you that you're faithful and just to forgive us. Lord, that you wipe the slate clean as often as it needs to be done. Because of your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, we can be looked at uh, not in light of our, our failures, but in light of our future, in light of our potential, in light of what we could do for you. But even not even about what we could do, but about who we are, about who you've created us to be, and the fact that you love us. God, I pray for those of us that are here that are maybe holding on to some unforgiveness, God. Maybe resentment, bitterness is built up. And I just pray, Lord, that you would do ministry this morning. Lord, that you in this time of response would just... Highlight the areas of our life that maybe we're holding on to pain, holding on to bitterness. And Lord, give us the courage today to release that pain into your hands, Lord, and to choose not to hang on to it anymore, to choose to walk out of here not carrying that same weight that we carried walking in. Jesus, we love you, and we invite you to examine our hearts. And we invite you to do ministry in us today, in Jesus' name, amen.